Take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Psalms. I was reminded of a few words from a hymn and how they integrated with the message tonight. And I forgot I was going to look it up. So I was sitting here on the platform thinking, uh, what was the name of that song? It was a familiar song, but you know how hard it is to think of a song while you're singing a different song. What is the name of that song? And as I sat down, uh, David and Sophia sang that song. (laughs) So, I don't know, the Lord's in. Whatever's going to happen tonight, the Lord's in it. Psalm 34 tonight, Psalm 34. Well, last week we had a sad event in our family. We finally, after I don't know how long it's been since we got back from Australia, but we finally ate the last Tim Tam. (laughs) They were finally gone. We finally ran out. You know, and the tragedy of Tim Tams is there are only nine of them in a package. Like, I mean, only nine. Who would, have, who would have thought of that? Now, some of you are sitting there, and this doesn't mean a thing to you because you have no idea what they are. You've never seen them. You've never tasted them. So we're talking about a, a um, I don't know how to, how to describe it for you, but we're talking about a, a, a chocolate sandwich cookie that is then dipped in chocolate to coat it all off. And they come in all sorts of flavors, caramel and salted caramel and white chocolate. And I like them all, all of them, except maybe the mint ones, a little heavy on the mint. But anyway, I like them all. And they were finally, finally gone this week. And so for some of you, you, ex- you experienced that yourself because we brought some back and gave away a few uh, as gifts. But the majority of them, sorry, uh, the case of them that we brought home They're finally gone. And you know what that's like because you ran out as well. You've tasted them before. It means something to you. We come to Psalm chapter 34, and it's probably one of the the most beloved chapters in the Bible. Um, It's a chapter of an exuberant rejoicing. It kind of seems, and we'll touch on this in just a moment, that David is is experiencing a wonderful time of rejoicing, a spiritual high where everything is going well. I mean, just look at some of these verses. We're, not, we're only going to look at one tonight specifically. But uh, like verse number one, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And so many of those verses uh, uh, are written on uh, uh, artwork or plaques that you buy at Hobby Lobby and decorate your home. They're just wonderful verses of praise and thanksgiving to God. Specifically, though, I want to look at verse number 8. Psalm 34 and verse 8 was the theme of the youth conference last week in Missouri that uh, I preached and just been meditating on this verse, familiar verse. It simply says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Heavenly Father, would you bless these few moments now tonight? I need you tonight. If we're going to hear from you, 
Um, Lord, you're going to have to take this message and apply it in a very specific and practical way to our hearts and lives. I pray that you teach me um, tonight, teach all of us from your word, and may we leave here tonight with a renewed resolve in our hearts to experience your goodness in our lives. May this be a profitable time in which we're changed to become more and more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. There's three remarkable elements in this verse. We're just going to jump right in, um, try to be as brief as possible tonight. But first of all, we see David's experience. He says, O taste and see. That word, O, O, taste and see. It's, a, it's an exclamation. It's a word of exclamation. It's like when we say, oh my, or we say, oh wow, or oh boy. It's, it's, a, it's an expression, an exclamation that is, is based in a passionate desire. And specifically, in this context, it's David's passionate desire for the benefit of someone else based upon his own experience. He's experienced something that is extremely uh, real to him. It's fresh to him. He's passionate about it. And he wants his, his readers, he wants those that are, will listen to him, he, he wants them to hear his experience so that they might benefit from it. And as I said a few moments ago, you might think in reading this chapter and the, the, the uplifting nature, the rejoicing nature of this chapter... That it was written during a time of great victory, a time of great joy, a time of a spiritual high where everything was going great. But that's actually not David's experience at all. What was his his experience? Well, you find it in the heading of the chapter. Did you see that before we read it? Psalm 34, it says, A psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. And there's almost a bit of dissonance between uh, that bit of explanation for us and the rest of the chapter. You'd almost expect like a, a downer of a chapter or a, uh, an introspective sort of um, woe is me kind of chapter, but you find something completely different. And I think there's a reason for that. So David references his experience, and that experience is found for us in the book of 1 Samuel. You can go ahead and turn there, because I think this is really important for us to see. What was David's experience? Find 1 Samuel in chapter number 21. 1 Samuel 21. Just before chapter 21 opens, it's become plainly obvious to David that Saul is very serious in his threats to to take his life. He's already thrown the javelin. He's already uh, uh, gotten upset um, with David for not being in his place. Um, And so it's become obvious that uh, David needs to go somewhere else. But chapter 21, when we read it, it, it gives us the idea, we see the picture of David kind of, in an emotional sense, spiraling out of control. You see what I mean there in verse verse number 1. It says that David... Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, 
And what I have commanded thee, and, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what, or what, or, yeah, or what there is present. Now can I ask you a question tonight? Was that true? No, it was a lie. So David, in his, in his haste, in his fear, which we'll look at in just a moment, um, he winds up believing the, the, the lies in his mind that his way is really the best way. And so what David has experienced is really the foolishness, and, and we'll, we'll dig into this into this chapter, but he's, he's experienced the foolishness of his own way. So David starts with lying to the priest. Jump down um, to uh, um, verse number 6. It says, So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. Not only did David approach this situation and he lied, he was not truthful. He, he, he made up a story so that Himelech would give him what he needed and what he wanted. But he also knew in doing this that this would endanger the priest, his family, and their lives. And we know that to be the case because if you just want to hold your place, maybe just one page over, chapter 22. In verse number 22, when David finds out what Saul did in response to this lie and Ahimelech helping him out and, and, giving and, and uh, providing for his needs, David's response is this. It says, And David said to Abiathar, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. In other words, what David is admitting is the fact that he knew that Doeg was there. He knew that there was a good chance that if he manipulated Ahimelech to do what he wanted him to do, he knew there was a good chance that he was putting God's servants in danger, but he did it anyway. Because it was his own way. This is the only way it was going to happen. This is the only way he was going to escape and have the provisions that he needed. And of course, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but uh, you're probably familiar with uh, how they were given bread and then also the sword of Goliath. That was the only way you get the weapons and the provisions he needed. And so if he had to cut some corners, if he had to, you know, uh, color a little bit of gray, that was, that was okay because that was what was required in order to get what he wanted. This is the foolishness of David's own way that he experienced. Back in chapter 21 and verse 10, we, find a, we finally see the root of all this. And we'll talk a little bit more about this later. After speaking with Ahimelech in verse 10, And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul. You realize this is the first mention of fear when it comes to David and Saul? Now, this was not the first time David faced danger. Um, this was not the, the javelin-throwing incident. This was not when, when David went to his house and, and his wife, Michael, had to make the image of him in, in her bed. Like This is way after the fact. But here's the first time we, we, we see the Bible telling us that David was afraid. David had faced the anger and the vengeance of Saul in the past, 
and even had fled for his life before this time. But this is the first time he feared. And we'll talk about it in a bit. Fear. Fear is one of those things that we don't realize that God calls sin. And so many times we have the the uncanny ability of explaining it away. It's, It's no big deal. It's no big thing. Fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is the enemy of faith. We'll see that in just a little bit. Then the second half of verse number 10, David's fleeing for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Does that town Gath sound familiar to you? Gath was not only a Philistine town, but it was the hometown of the giant Goliath. The one that David had previously slew with a slingshot, and you know that famous story? This was the hometown of, hometown of Goliath. So David, in his fear, is seeking refuge with God's enemies. Verse 11, And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Even the Philistines were looking at this going, this doesn't make much sense. Do you know who this guy is? Do you know who this guy has come to us to, to seek safety and refuge? Do you know what he, who he is? He's the guy that killed Goliath. He's the one they're singing songs about. And they even realized he's the one who is anointed as the future king of Israel. What is he doing here? And that's a valid question. One we could almost grab David by the shoulders and say, what are you doing here? What are you thinking? Well, he's not thinking. He's experiencing the foolishness of his own way, allowing fear to dictate his actions. And if that weren't bad enough, when David hears this and he realizes, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I've kind of been had. This isn't good. Verse 13, it says, He changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, you see, the man is mad. Wherefore then have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Get rid of this guy. What in the world? I don't need insane people helping me or trying to help me out in my kingdom. Get him out of here. And David escaped. Chapter 22 opens. It says, David therefore departed thence and escaped, escaped to the cave Adullam. And you'll notice that it's similar in verbiage to the introduction of Psalm chapter 34. David had humiliated himself to the point that he was pretending that he had lost his mind. And in a sense, spiritually, this was just a physical display of what happened spiritually. He had lost his way. He had lost his mind, or maybe we should say he had lost his faith. And somewhere between the end of chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 22... Or maybe we say from the end of chapter 21 into Psalm, the writing of Psalm 34, something changed. You see, David had already tasted the fruit of his own ideas. 
He had already already tasted of the fruit of his own plans, of his own schemes, of doing things his own way because they made sense to him. And it left a really nasty taste in his mouth. He feared. He lied. He endangered God's servants. He sought refuge with God's enemies. He humiliated himself. And David had one of those, what am I doing moments. You know, like the prodigal son says that when he was there feeding the pigs in the pigsty, the Bible tells us he came to himself. He had some time to consider, where am I? What am I doing here? How did I get here? And the reality was he was sitting in that place with a bit of a relief that he was, uh, that, that the situation didn't get much worse than it, it already was. And he realized this is all a result of my own doing. This is a result of me. And it's at that point that David goes from tasting the foolishness of his own way to now tasting the goodness of God. Say, so how did he experience the goodness of God? Well, in verse 1, it says that he departed and escaped. That's the goodness of God. There's the, the goodness of, the, of God and the fact that God showed him mercy. When David finally decided he was going to return to where he belonged, he realized something. God has been good to me. I deserve God's, God's punishment for my sin. I deserve for God to sit back and say, well, you wanted to do it. So enjoy the consequences. Enjoy what comes of it. This is what you wanted, so go ahead. You made the bed, you get to sleep in it. You would expect God to do that, but instead God in his mercy decided to give David an escape. In spite of David's fear and David's sin, God was good. God provided an escape out of a situation that was David's own doing. This was not God putting him in that situation. David put himself in that situation. But God provided an escape. And I wonder, we're not told exactly if this was dawning or when this dawned on his mind, but I wonder if this was the thought. As he was leaving the throne room of Achish, those thoughts, you know you have those thoughts like, you just got away with one there, buddy. You just barely escaped that one. I don't know. I've said that to myself at times. God and his mercy has been good to you. And when David finally comes to this place of returning to where he knew God wanted him to be, getting out of the situation where he knew God didn't want him to be, he also experienced God's goodness in providing and provision for him. And really the opening of 1 Samuel 22 kind of bears this out. In verse number 1 it says, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Dulam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And you might even pass by that verse and, and miss the significance of it. But you notice that it mentions his brothers, his brethren, his brothers, and his father, and his entire house. Then in verse 3, it says, And when and David went thence to, to Mizpah, 
of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. In other words, we see God in his provision providing for David's family and for their protection. Because if you, you understand the fact that if David's life is in danger, it's not just David, but it is David and his entire family. I'm sure this was a worry, this was a care on the heart of David. This was a fear. What is going to happen to my family? How can I provide safety for my family? And when David comes to himself and he realizes that, you know, my way of doing things my way leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I'm going to do things God's way. What does God prove to David? God proves that he is good and he provides protection for David's family. This wasn't a scheme of David. This wasn't a plan of David. This was God's provision. God provided for David's family. God provided, in verse number 2, everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. We see God's provision in the fact that God provided a faithful and loyal band of mighty men. These were the men that later on we read about. These were the group of men that became David's mighty men. Perhaps you've heard messages about some of them and the the great feats of bravery that, that they accomplished in their lives. So God provides a faithful and a loyal band for David. Before, he felt alone. And because of that alone feeling and out of that fear, he he winds up going his own way. When he returns back to God and says, okay, I'm going to do things your way. I'm going to get back where I belong. God says, okay, I'm going to provide for you. And God provides some loyal men who are going to be by his side throughout his reign and throughout the rest of his life. Then in verse 5, we see that God provides David with some direction through the prophet Gad. Specifically, Gad had some, some directions as to where David was to stay, where David was to go. God provided his direction. I want you to see this contrast, that this experience of David, he experienced the fruit of his own way, and that left a bitter taste in his mouth. He returns back to God. He has the, what am I doing moment, and now David experiences the goodness of God. Going back to Psalm 34, that really paints the context of what David is saying. When he gets to verse number 8 and he says, Oh, based on my experience, I, I just went through this situation. It's fresh, it's real. Because of my experience, I, I'm exclaiming to you to do the same thing that I did. Won't you taste and see that God is good? Once you have the same experience that I had, I was doing my own thing, going my own way, tasting the results of of, of my own thinking, my own plans, my own way. And God rescued me from that in His mercy. And He showed me how good He really is. And I want you to experience the same thing, which leads to number two, not only David's experience, but David's exhortation. He says, oh, taste and see. Oh, taste and see that God is good. That word, taste. I don't know about you, but even with how busy it is all the time, I still enjoy going to Costco, especially around lunchtime. You are laughing because most of you know why. 
I remember as a kid, you know, you go to Sam's and they would have, you know, one or two taste testers. But you go to Costco around lunchtime and there's like a half a dozen. They're at the end of every aisle. And it's awesome. I mean, am I right? There's, I mean, once in a while there's a couple of duds. I think the seaweed, that was a dud. Okay, not going to do that again. Um, but, you know, there's a couple times where it's like, hello? It's like, do you want to try some ice cream? What? Who says no to that? Uh, here's a, here's a, uh, um, an ice cream sandwich. We cut it up into pieces. Would you like some? Would I like some? Here's some cookies. Would you like? Would I like some? Are you serious? I mean, they've got everything. It's great. And, of course, there's a reason for that. You understand that. Once you taste something, it creates a desire in you to experience it some more and again. David's using a metaphor here to, to illustrate with this word what it's like to personally experience the goodness of God. In order to do that, you need to first come to that place where you're willing to taste. What does it mean to taste? Well, it's not a complicated word, but it just simply means to perceive by means of the tongue. Now, I don't know about you, it's pretty wise for you to be sensitive about what comes in contact with your tongue. I hope that you kind of protect what goes in your mouth. There's some things that I'm willing to touch, to look at, maybe even to, you know, get a whiff of, but to stick it in my mouth, well, that's another story. I learned a very hard lesson as a five-year-old to be very careful about things you stick in your mouth. Ends of extension cords are not good things to stick in your mouth. And when you do, it lands you in the hospital, gives you an ambulance ride, and a nice, nice scar on your face as just as something to remember it by. So you've got to be a little bit, you've got to discriminate about things that you put in your mouth. Because there's, there's some consequences there. Your mouth is, a, or your tongue specifically is an intimate organ. Once you taste it, it's hard to untaste it. To taste means that you examine something by your own personal experience. Now, you can certainly gain information from the taste of others. All this. And I had this the other day, and it was good. Let me describe how good it was. Let me describe how good it tastes. So you can gain some information. You can walk out of here tonight and say, you know, he mentioned something about Tim Tams from Australia. Those sounded pretty good. Anything dipped in chocolate is good, right? Just about anything. Chocolate covers a multitude of sins. So, I mean, they'll, they'll dip all sorts of things in chocolate and it just all of a sudden it makes it good. So you leave here and you go, hey, um, I guess they're pretty good. But you haven't tasted them. You haven't experience them. You can learn from, from my experience. You can listen and say, oh, I guess they must be good because he said they were good. But to taste, there's got to be a personal experience. No one else can taste something for you. You have to do it yourself. To taste means that you experience not the whole lot of things, but just a little bit. Just a little bit. And I would recommend, especially when you go to Costco, don't go back for seconds. It makes you look bad. It's just a little bit. 
If you liked it, you really should buy it. All right, that's just good, um, good manners, I guess. But you only have to experience a small portion. Anybody can taste of the goodness of God. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be an expert in doctrine. You don't have to know everything there is to know about the Bible or, or where things are located in the Bible. And uh, you, don't, you don't need any of that. Anybody can really experience, can taste just a little bit of God's goodness and have this same experience that David had. Tasting also requires ingesting. Because normally in order to taste something fully, you have to kind of take it all in. This is the reason why when you're a little suspicious of the milk in the fridge, you put it to the smell test before you, you know, open the hatch and pour it down. Because you might just get, you know, milk chunky style. And that's not so good. So before you take it all in, you, you know, before you intimately get it involved with your mouth, it's kind of like, you know, you smell it first. There's a reason for that. Because in order to taste something, you have to take it all in. And your nose can protect you from taking something in that you don't want to take in. I think this was the reason for the illustration that Jesus used. For time's sake, we're not going to go there. But have you ever read John chapter 6? And there's some troubling things that Jesus says in John chapter 6. Let me just, I'll read it to you. John 6, if you want to turn there, you can. Verse 53. It says, Then Jesus said unto them, this is John 6, verse 53, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Verse 54, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. What in the world is Jesus talking about? He's very explicitly said, not once, but over and over again, in order to experience eternal life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, of course, we realize that there are false religions that come along and they say, well, we know what this is. This is the Lord's table and, and the minister raises the elements to the heavens and blesses them and they become the body and the blood of Jesus. And then we do exactly what is spoken of here. We, we eat it, we drink it, and therefore we have eternal life. And that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Amen. Later on in the chapter, you're probably familiar, Jesus said these things are, are spirit. He's illustrating something. What is he illustrating? Well, he's illustrating the fact that in order to taste and see that he is good, you have, to, you have to ingest something. You have to take it in. And when it comes to Jesus, you have to take in his sacrifice on the cross for you. You, 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 have, to, you have to take some risk and make it a part of you. you. You've heard that phrase, you are what you eat. And that is partially true. I mean, not partially, it's, it's fully true. What you eat becomes 
who you are. It's, it's ingested into your cells. It infuses your cells with energy and life. And you become what you eat, which is a pretty good idea to you know, watch what you eat because you know, that's what you're going to be. So we take in Jesus and his sacrifice for us. We take that risk of ingesting him, of making him a part of who we are. And so much so that there, there, there's no separation and if you're a born-again believer here tonight, you, you understand what that means. Once you come into that relationship with God, that relationship with Christ, you have no concept of what it is like to live apart from Christ and apart from God. It's just intertwined. My, my relationship with God, what does that mean to me? It's part of who I am. It's, it's a part of, uh, of how I think and how I live my life. There's no separation of the two. Why? Because I have, in, in, in this uh, in this illustrative sense. I've taken Jesus in. I've eaten of his flesh. I've, I've drank of his blood and his sacrifice for me. It's become who I am. And, I, and I've been willing to take it all in. There's, there's, there's not a partial tasting here. There's a commitment. This is not a smell test. What does it smell like? What does it look like? What is it made of? What's the What's the scientific makeup of all the elements? What's the ingredient list? How much fat does it have? How much calories does it have? All right, all those things are kind of dancing around the main dish. And dare I say, there's probably some people in this auditorium that when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation, that's what you've done. You're dancing all around this idea of salvation. You're looking at it. You're smelling it. You're testing it. You're looking at all the ingredients. But you haven't taken it in. You haven't taken the step of faith to say, all right, there's a commitment that's involved in taking it in. And you can look at it and examine it all you want. It's not going to do you any good unless you take it in. David's exhortation is to taste. Taste, and then he says, if you, if you will taste, you will see. You'll see. Well, what does it mean to see? Well, the idea here is that you get acquainted with something, that you know something, that you observe it to be true. For yourself, you discover it. You feel it. It's a, it's a personal understanding. When somebody says, hey, look over there, look at that. There's a sense in which, all right, I want to look and I want to experience the same thing that they experience. And then you say, where, where, where is, oh, I see it. I see it. I have a personal understanding has the idea of gaining an experiential knowledge. Like, I've been there. I've been through it. I've experienced it. And now, I get it. And there's some of you in the auditorium tonight where you hear this verse, and there's an experiential side of you that says, I get that. I've been there. I've experienced that. Taste and see. It also has the idea, we thinking we think a little bit further about this idea of tasting. It also gives you a desire for more. It's not just a one-time sort of thing where you taste and see. That seeing, that experience drives you back where you say, once is not enough. I want more. And there's a sense in which. There's an experience that has begun at the point of salvation that really ought to continue throughout the Christian life. 
in which we come to the place where we're willing to take a risk, to trust, and by faith, taste of Jesus once again. To taste of God once again. And see again that He is good. Taste and see. And we've already said this, but what exactly are we going to see? What exactly are we going to experience? What exactly are we going to understand? Well, we're going to understand that the Lord is good. Now, David assures us of this. If you taste, you will see. This is going to happen. If you make this choice, if you take this risk, if you step out by faith and, 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 and taste of God, you will see the goodness of God. You will see the goodness specifically of the Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You'll notice it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Jehovah God. The self-existent one. The one who doesn't need you. The one who doesn't need me. God will accomplish His will. He will do His will with or without me. And if I decide, you know what, I'm not going to be a part of things, God's not sitting in heaven going, oh no, how am I going to do my plan without Him? It's, it's not happening that way. Now, we are the loser when we say, I, I, I'm not interested. And God says, okay, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take someone else for that joyride. I'll take someone else for that experience, and that is our loss. But God doesn't need us. But yet, at the same time, the Lord, Jehovah God is good to us. He doesn't need us. So this is not some sort of manipulation like, I'm going to be good to you, so you'll do what I want. He doesn't need us, but yet He's good to us. The word good means he's, God is pleasant. He's excellent, kind, and agreeable to us. Good is the word that God used to describe His creation each and every day. And God saw what He made, and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And on the sixth day, it was very good. Think about the most wonderful, spectacular place that you have seen. The, the, the most beautiful landscape that you've seen. Think about, that's God right there. I'm looking at God. God is good. Goodness is also a description of God's character and His nature. It's who He is. Psalm 100, verse 5, the Lord is good. It's not just a, a character quality that he displays on our behalf once in a while, but it is who he is. He is good. In other words, if we choose to examine God, if we choose to taste of God and his way in our lives, we will have a personal experience with who he is, Amen. with his goodness. And on top of that, who God is will have a direct and positive impact on our personal well-being. Think about that. What a marvelous truth that is. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So we've seen David's experience, his exhortation, but now number three, his equation. What is David's equation? Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. The equation is trusting God is equal to blessing. Trusting equals blessing. 
Well, what is blessing? Blessing is, means to be happy. It's happiness. That's literally what the word means. It means a level of, of satisfaction and prosperity in our hearts. That's what everyone is searching for. That's what everyone is looking for. And deep down inside, that's what you and I are looking for. We're, we're looking for satisfaction. We're looking for happiness. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. The word trust means to confide or to rest in something. Now, why is this equation so difficult for us to understand? Trusting in God equals blessing. Why is... Because you would think... Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's such a simple thing, right? So just do it, right? Taste and see that God is good. Why do we struggle with this at times? And I'll tell you why. Because in reality, the other equation that's here is that tasting equals trusting. When you taste something, it requires a level of trust in what you're tasting where it comes from, who's been handling it, whether or not it's been corrupted or defiled, there's a measure of faith when you stick something in your mouth. And that's the illustration. That's the picture that's here. In order to taste something, we've got to trust that what it really is, is good. And this is the rub, because we then rob ourselves of blessing when we choose fear over faith. And as fallen mankind... We have a propensity to fear. I mean, let's just be honest and lay it all out. In the last couple of years, we have seen a vivid, colored illustration of how human beings are bent to fear. Now, whether that meant some people on this side were so deathly afraid of of getting sick and dying, they're willing to completely disconnect themselves and and get rid of life in general just to preserve their life. They were so afraid. Or people that were so afraid of the government or some vaccine. I mean, Whatever it comes down to is our existence is not in our hands. It's in God's hands. Do we trust Him or do we not? But there's that propensity to fear. Whether you're on one side or the other, you felt that pull. It was, oh no, I'm going to get sick. Or, oh no, the government's going to kill me. I mean, it's fear. That's, that we just naturally fall into that. We naturally slide into that. And that's the sin. That's the problem. We have a propensity to fear. Jesus dealt with this very plainly and clearly with his disciples. Over and over again, actually. In Mark 4 and verse 40, Jesus says to his disciples, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Do you see the connection? Fear. Faith. How is it that you have no faith? How is your first consideration, your logic, your mind, your direction, that's your first consideration rather than, God, what do you want me to do? We take an introspective look at our, ourselves and our minds, what we have figured out, what we have deduced about a situation, whether or not it's wise or unwise, all this sort of thing. And we never even one time stop to say, God, what do you want? That's what David did. Do you, do you see the illustration? When, when, when the emergency happened, David was in fear mode. David was in, I've got to do something to get out of this situation. I've got to fix things. I figured it out. This is what I'm going to do. This makes sense to me. 
without ever once stopping and saying, God, what do you want me to do? I think if he had asked God, do you want me to go and seek safety from your enemies, from the Philistines? I'm pretty sure the answer would have been, nah, it's not a good idea. It would have saved him being in that situation. But we get in that emergency mode, that flesh mode, and all of a sudden now we're operating out of fear and not out of faith. And this is a convicting thought because in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, the first two things that are listed, but the fearful, and literally that word means timid when it comes to faith. Reluctant to trust God. But the fearful and the unbelieving, and then the abominable murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God places living by fear instead of faith on the same level with some of those other things. That's convicting. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I've experienced it. I've tasted it my own way. And if David were here tonight, he would describe the endless number of tastes and experiences that are crying out for your attention. He would describe them all the same way. He would describe the happiness and fulfillment that they promise. He would describe it all the same way. Probably similar to the writer of Proverbs Which he says there, the bread of deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth shall be filled with gravel. Pretty sure he would say, doing things my way, operating in fear instead of faith, figuring out what was going to keep me safe and pursuing after that was a mistake. And as I laid there wallowing in my own spit and scratching on the door, there was a sense in which was like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. I'm experiencing the taste of my own way. And it's just gravel. But when he got to the, this place, the Psalm 34 place, where he's writing about magnifying the Lord, when he gets to this place, he says, you got to experience this with me. you got to taste and see that God is good. Listen to those around you who have some experience. But don't just stop there. Don't just come to church and listen to those faithful few brethren who have a sweet walk with God and live vicariously through them. Don't just sort of live that way through, through your mom and through your dad and through their experience and you just kind of feed off of that. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But it is just the beginning. Now, you have to make the personal choice. You have to take the risk. You have to take the step of faith to taste and personally experience the blessing of God's goodness in your own life. And that requires faith. That requires the man who trusts in him. They might have tasted and personally experienced the blessing of God. And now they're imploring you to do the same thing but only you can taste and see. And here's the wonderful thing, and we'll close with this tonight. If you're willing to give God a taste, you'll gain a personal experience with God's goodness. You'll be the one with David saying, hey, oh, my experience, come listen. I 
I mean, it's not all about me, but you've you got to experience the same thing that I have. And here's the wonderful thing. Once you've tasted of the goodness of God by faith, you'll only want more. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just in simple faith to plunge him neath the healing precious flood. Jesus, Jesus, how I've trusted him, how I've proved him, tasted and seen him, or and or, Jesus, Jesus, blessed Jesus, and I like this, this is the phrase, oh, for grace to trust him more. Amen. 